Welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And swinging in over the Berlin Wall in a bucket this week, we have joining us professional musician and author of the Scott Hunter spy series of books, Duncan Swindles. Hi. Thank you very much for having me on. Welcome to the show, Duncan. We're so glad to have you on. We need a spy expert because, you know, we're still novices. We need an expert. Okay. I'll see what I can do. (laughs) Now, would you like to just talk a little bit about your Scott Hunter book series? Because for those unaware who maybe want to check them out on Amazon or Kindle. Yeah, sure. So um, the first book came out a couple of years ago now, um, Birth of a Spy. Um, It's very Cambridge orientated. Um, I guess I'm going for the sort of John le Carre approach to spying and not so much the James Bond. Uh, And the second book, uh, Absent Friends, that came out in January this year um, and follows Scott on his, he's been recruited, so it's his first kind of mission. And then I really should have finished the third book in lockdown but uh, I haven't done anything I'm afraid so I'm, I'm finishing the third book now. So what inspired you to start writing these stories like was it just you were a big fan of spy literature or kind of what got the ball rolling? So um, there was a man called Leo Marx um, he worked for the SOE just after the war and then he went into Hollywood um, he wrote the film script for Peeping Tom, uh, which kind of killed Anthony Powell's career off. That's a um, fantastic movie. Yeah. yeah, it's an amazing. I mean, it's cult now, isn't it? I think. Oh yeah. So yeah. you can actually find it for free. Uh, you know, listeners, if you go to Tubi, the streaming network Tubi, they are actually running Peeping Tom right now. It's really worth checking out. Oh, it's a fantastic film. So Leo Marx wrote a book called Between Silk and Cyanide about his time working for the SOE. And uh, I was I was given the book, and I really wanted to make it into a film. I thought it would make a fantastic film. And I was trying to write film scripts at the time, and I spent a bit of time with Sid Field and people like that. So, um, But I came to realize that writing films is incredibly difficult. Writing screenplays is just, it's like the largest jigsaw puzzle that you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and my parents are both authors and my mum just said, why, instead of trying to write a film, why don't you just write a novel? And so that's what I've done. And, uh, so Leo Marx is, is kind of in the first book. He's one of the characters. Oh, okay. Cool. Um, but I would really recommend it's an incredible, his life story around about the end of the war is absolutely incredible. And so he claims to then have gone to Hollywood, um, but I'm sure that he was still recruited somewhere. I just can't believe, even just the picture of him on the on the dust jacket with the big cigar, the velt DJ, he looks like a spy. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, um, between Silk and Cyanide, that's my, that was my sort of inspiration. It's a wonderful book. Awesome. Okay. And also, I'm just curious for those listening, um, how would you sort of describe the Scott Hunter character? Oh, he's, um, (laughs) 
he's very awkward. He's a he's a kind of maths prodigy, and the first book really explores his background. I don't want to give too much away, but he's he's very he's quite a troubled character, and that's really the whole point of the first book. Is you 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 begin to understand quite why he's quite so troubled, and he, at the start of the book, he's just graduated from Cambridge. Um, and he receives uh, a mysterious code. He's there. There are groups of people, um, mostly online now, I think, who decode old Enigma codes from the Second World War because there's hundreds of them that were never cracked. And so, <clears throat> every now and again, like the Daily Telegraph here in the UK, will publish a few of these and send them out for people to have a go at, to see if they can crack them. And so that's what he does. That's his kind of uh, hobby, is cracking codes. Um, and one day he receives a code, but it's it's an unusual one. It's not one of the ones that's come from Bletchley Park or the Imperial War Museum. And that takes him off on a on his first um, adventure, if you like. I mean, it's a, an awkward guy with the initials SH. I'm a bit worried that you're just telling my life story here. <laughs> <laughs> Although, Scott, you're not cracking any Enigma codes anytime soon. <laughs> no, I, I can barely crack anything, let alone eggs. I can't even crack Wheel of Fortune, so, you know. <laughs> now, Duncan, we got chatting uh, on Twitter, actually, about the Ipcris file originally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Great and Yeah, I, I have my opinions on that film. <laughs> <laughs> Great film. Um, Cam agrees with you. And um, so, and then you, you talked about your, your love of the spy genre. Um, and that's why I think I was sort of impassioned to have you on this episode with us as a follow-up for it. And I know, obviously, you're a professional musician by trade and had a fantastic score from the first film. And we'll talk about the second film and their, the score for that film going forward. But um, apart from the Ipcris series and your own books, is there any other uh, spy series you quite like? Oh, well, I, I love all the John le Carre stuff. He's a genius. Um, I like that. I like the sort of seedier, um, more kind of human uh, spy thrillers. So the thing with the John le Carre, like uh, Tinker Taylor, for example, it's not really a story about spying. It's a story about how how flawed these men are and some of the terrible decisions they make in their private lives. And mm. for George Smiley, it's really about the whole story is really about Anne. It's about his wife and their relationship. The spying just sits on top of it as another level. I love that. So um, you tend to go for the more sort of the grounded story. Yeah. Which, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, the Len Dayton books, I'm, I'm just sort of getting into those, but they're very much of that kind of character of slightly more, uh, you know, Harry Palmer. He's, he's a working class hero. He's not, he's not a Bond. Yeah, he's definitely not, um, you know, uh, parasailing out, um, running ahead of like frozen glaciers, you know, as we saw in, say, Die Another Day or something like that. Yeah, he, do, he I mean, does carry an inflatable bat suit. To be fair, though, <laughs> that's true. That's true. There, there's Although, a, who doesn't? Let's be fair. Well, there's a place for the Bond. St the Bond stuff's great fun. It's just different. Yeah, that's what really bonded. Uh, pardon the pun. There, uh, Scott and I was talking about James Bond, but 
Um, a big part of this journey of the podcast has been delving into these various corners. I'd obviously like just as a big film fan had touched on a lot of these films in the past, things like spy who came in from the cold, for example, but it's been really fascinating re-examining these things and putting them in the context of, you know, when they were created and the real events at the time going on. Yeah. I mean, I think spy who came in from the cold it, as a piece of literature is, is way up there. Uh, it, it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, the only person I think that rivals Le Carre like that is Graham Greene. Um, mm. But the writing in, in Spy Who Came In From The Cold is superb. Mm -hmm. It's really fantastic. And I hope you're going to do that as a film because oh, yeah. that, that oh, yeah. is a wonderful film. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely on our list to tackle down the road. But let's let's get on track with today's topic. And, and Cam, the question is, what are we doing? Well, Scott, we're going to decide, I guess, whether Funeral in Berlin puts the fun back in Funeral with the second Harry Palmer entry. So this is the sequel to The Ipcris File. I feel like you had that line in your pocket, but uh, we'll, we'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, let, let's kick off with a synopsis from Letterboxd.com. Funeral in Berlin. It was going to be a lovely funeral. Harry Ipcrisfile Palmer just hoped it wouldn't be his. Colonel Stock, a Soviet intelligence officer responsible for the security of the Berlin Wall, appears to want to defect, but the evidence is contradictory. Stock wants the British to handle his defection and asks for one of their agents, Harry Palmer, to smuggle him out of East Germany. Not bad. I think that gets the job done. That gets, a, I think, an A- from me. <laughs> it's a difficult plot to summarize. <laughs> well, I'm curious, you know, as an author, um, Duncan, how does that uh, letterbox write-up uh, work for you? Well, <laughs> I mean, it's a very complicated story, I think. That's what I think, too. I mean, to sum it up, not bad. I think he, you know, yeah. the, the writer did a decent job there. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got the little, like, the, the VHS box, the, the, the tagline at the top of that, so that it was going to be Lovey Funeral blah 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 yeah. and the actual plot is beneath it but I, I, one of our better ones <laughs> um now i hadn't obviously watched this before tackling it for the film cam i don't think you had any experience of it before nope nothing uh duncan i know you watched it for the for the podcast but had you ever seen it before no i hadn't no okay um well then the inevitable question is, Cam, do you have anything for us on how this film was put together and, and created? Yeah, I do have some stuff on this one. Um, so Harry Saltzman, the producer of this film, who also co-produced the Bond franchise, um, he wasn't very happy with his experience shooting The Ipcris File with director Sidney J. Fury. Um, Sidney J. Fury was a little too artistic and a little too demanding for what they were looking for as a director. And so they instead chose with the sequel to hire Guy Hamilton, who was just coming off of Goldfinger, um, because he was a little more of, as they wanted, a conventional director. Um, they were going to get rid of things like the arty framing, strange angles, things like that, that made the original, I think, actually hold up really well in an interesting way. I think probably, <laughs> Duncan, you probably agree with that. Yeah, I, I, I like that approach. The whole film is, is kind of kilted, isn't it? It's all off to an angle. That's the point. 
Yeah, I know, but <laughs> I guess in 1960, uh, 1965, when they'd be prepping this one, they were like, no way, we don't want any more of that. <laughs> and so this was also going to be a, a little more of an ambitious Harry Palmer film. The budget was increased. Mm. Um, they were using a script from writer uh, Evan Jones, who really was most notable for coming off of a movie that's mostly been forgotten called Modesty Blaze or Blase, which was a spy spoof at the time. Um, he also would go on to write Victory, the soccer drama with Michael Caine and Sylvester Stallone. And for their source material, they actually chose Funeral in Berlin because it was more ambitious. It was actually the third of the Len Dayton, um, Harry Palmer stories. And they aren't really Harry Palmer stories in the novels. He doesn't even have a name in the novels, but we'll just call them that to make it a little more concise <laughs> to the point. But the second novel, Scott, you're going to love the title of this one, was actually called Horse Underwater. <laughs> <laughs> the return of horse hearts everyone that's right and so i am curious duncan if you've read horse underwater i haven't no yeah i was just curious if that i'm wondering if it was maybe a little too much like the ipcris file which you know really stuck to london locales and had that more street level thing whereas they wanted to really mix it up and go am more ambitious because at this point the james bond franchise has exploded with goldfinger and thunderball and so I have to imagine they were maybe looking at um, expanding the worldview of Harry Palmer as well. That just makes a lot of sense to me. Oh, I was going to say, if, if they've got a bigger budget as well. Yeah, exactly. Like Harry Saltzman, it makes sense that he would want in his back pocket another franchise that is hopefully going to not necessarily compete with the grandeur of the Bond franchise, but is sort of a, uh, you know, a safety net, like a franchise he could always jump to if something went wrong with Bond. It's, it's interesting that they, in the first film, just stuck with, you know, drab, grey London. And then in this follow-up, when they're trying to be a little bit more expansive with some more money, they chose to go to drab, grey Germany. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that about the Harry Palmer world, though, Scott? I can't disagree with that. Drab and grey is good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's the, the moral ambiguity. It's all yeah. symbolic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And um, yeah, it's interesting because Guy Hamilton comes in and I don't know that when you watch the Ipcris file, you think of Guy Hamilton style. Um, he was, again, as I said, a more conventional choice, but he did have a background. He was a member of military intelligence during World War II. And Michael Caine said that a lot of the ideas that happened on set came from Guy Hamilton's experiences working in military intelligence, which I thought was actually fairly interesting. If you actually Google online, you can see some um, interesting stories about Guy Hamilton's wartime experiences. Totally worth checking out. Also of note, um, for the female lead, um, the actress Anjane Comer was cast as Samantha Steele and did shoot um, some early sections of the movie, but had to leave due to illness. And so she was then replaced with uh, Eva Renzi. And if you actually go online, you can find stills of Michael Caine shooting scenes with Anjane Comer. So what could have been, guys? What could have been? But what's notable is Anjanae Comer that same year also released another movie um, where she co-starred with Marlon Brando called The Appaloosa. And this movie was a bomb. It's not really well-remembered, not well-reviewed, but it was directed by Sidney J. Fury. So there you have it, folks. It's all connected. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, and so this movie... Um, I don't have the budget on it. I have the budget on the Ipcris file, which was 750000 And so, so they're saying this one has a higher budget. So I'm thinking probably in the $1 million, $1 1.2 million sort of number. 
Um, a lot of the money obviously was put into the locations, um, which were a little perilous because they had a lot of situations of East German guards interfering with the shooting by angling mirrors into the cameras to create light reflections. I feel like that's a movie unto itself. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the movie had a higher budget and it, when it was released, it grossed $4.4 million, which I mean, that's not a bad build upon, say, like a $1.2 million investment, but the Ipcris file had made $8.1 million. So not great. Not great at all. I didn't remember what the original Ipcris file made, but I did recall that it made money and it was successful. So this feels like it was a step back. Yeah, when you're investing more money and getting almost half the return, it's not great. And if you do the adjustment calculation on that, uh, 4.4 million equals 36.2 million now so that's not mm. yeah, that's not a home run that's for sure actually makes me surprised there was a follow-up to be fair do you think people would have been put off simply by the title of the film i don't know um because you know the Chris file was such a huge movie and it did make michael Caine a star you'd think they would come back for a sequel maybe the title was a little too grim mm-hmm. um Maybe the setting, just the whole, um, you know, East versus West Berlin stuff um, was maybe a little too fresh in the minds and the audience just didn't want to go and have some, you know, an escape to the cinema that felt a little too real world. I don't know. It's very strange. I wouldn't say that this is escapism cinema. No. No, no. Maybe it was just a little too serious because the Ipcris file is a more down and dirty spy film, but you have you know, a lot of interesting filmmaking going on. It feels more stylized. You have things like the the um, brainwashing, which feels kind of surreal. So it has some sort of popping on screen versus this one, which, as you know, you said, Scott, is more of that gray sort of downcast look. Um, but yeah, if you look at the overall box office that year, um, the top three is very big movies that a lot of them haven't really held up that well. Number one was The Bible in the Beginning which was a big sort of compilation of Old Testament Bible stories. Um, I've seen it. It's, it's, a, it's a sit. <laughs> did, did it is it, a sit. Did it have a follow-up? <laughs> the Bible, the end? <laughs> it's shocking it didn't really. Because <laughs> the Bible grossed um, $37.5 million, which equates $310 million nowadays. So the fact that there was no bo- the Bible the next chapter or something like that is pretty shocking. Bible two electric boogaloo. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The number two movie was a film with Julie Andrews and Max von Sydow called Hawaii, which I had never heard of. And it was a massive smash. (laughs) See, it's about escapism. Who doesn't want to go to Hawaii or the Bible? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. <laughs> and number and number three, uh, maybe shooting holes in Scott's theory. Who's afraid of Virginia Wolf, which is anything but escapism cinema? <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, I'll, I'll take it back. I'll take it back. Yeah. The um, only other notable movie. There are some other spy movies, but when we're talking about movies of this era, it's very tough to get solid numbers when you get lower down the the, the you know down the rankings. Um, so we'll talk about those when we touch on those movies later, but some other ones that opened this year were like Our Man Flint, The Silencers, Torn Curtain, Murderer's Row. All of those movies performed better than Funeral in Berlin, and we'll touch on those in the future. Um, the one really notable movie to mention, though, is um, this year around kind of the number 10 spot 
was Alfie, the Michael Caine drama, which grossed um, $21.2 million, which equals about $176 million. So Michael Caine may have had a bit of a underperformer in Funeral in Berlin, but he was on top of the world with Alfie. And we will be discussing Alfie probably in the future because the director of that movie would go on to become one of the major Bond directors. That was Lewis Gilbert, who did You Only Live Twice, as well as uh, Moonraker. And, um, you know, he did another one in there, too. Maybe that's what carried them through to the the third film, uh, the trilogy, although it's not technically a trilogy, but just having the name value of Michael Caine. Yeah, probably. I mean, he was a star at this point. And um, I look forward to talking about his performance in this movie because I did notice some differences between the Ipcris file. But that wraps me up for background on Funeral in Berlin. Well, let's get into it then. I'm on record with my thoughts about the Ipcris file um i'm just gonna i'm gonna start us off i usually would go guest first but i feel like the the elephant in the room is what the what on earth does scott think about this film (laughs) (laughs) i have to say i actually enjoyed this film oh wow Wow. okay this is a this blows my mind interesting i wasn't expecting that i i found it to be funnier i found it to be hmm, i found it to be easier to get behind as a film it actually captivated my interest more and i think i'm thinking back to my ipcris file problems a lot of it i think seems to be to do with the direction of the film the interesting camera angles and stuff threw me off so maybe i just don't really like art house films as much as i like more mainstream styles which i would say this is in comparison yeah i'd agree with that although you did like hannah and that's a pretty bizarro movie that's true maybe it's just uh, the city j fury style you're not a fan of Maybe. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll throw it over to you, Duncan. What did you think of this film? Um, well, uh, when you when we spoke about coming on to talk about this, so I was very excited and I rushed off to watch the film immediately. And I sat down with a glass of wine, as is my way. And I laughed a lot at the beginning, first kind of third. Um, but as the as it went on, I got more and more confused. And less able to work out what on earth was going on. And so, um, and then I got to the end of the film, I I had no idea what had happened. And I realized that we were going to talk about it. So I went back then and watched it a second time, but without the wine, which is really (laughs) my main recommendation. So if you're going to sit down and watch this, you need your wits about you. I think it's, it's, the the plot is very clever and if you miss one single turn in the plot you've had it you'll never work out what on earth is going on mm-hmm. um but i completely agree i mean there's some great gags in the first kind of 25 minutes i i just think about the the line that palmer says to ross when he just asks him if he's ever thought about defecting and he just goes cuz i have yeah <laughs> Yeah. I mean, every line is either a gag or a contradiction. You know, so he says, um, um, I like weeds. Palmer says, well, yeah, because they're easy to grow. (laughs) So um, I I, kind of liked it, but I did find it quite confusing. Yeah. uh, For me, I really enjoyed the Ipcris file a lot. Like that one to me really just came to life watching it. And it was definitely a movie that as I'm watching, I'm all I could think was, why did I not discover this, you know, many years ago 
Funeral in Berlin, I enjoyed as well. To me, it was a significant step down. Um, it just, I agree that the plot gets very uh, confusing. Um, I was definitely taking notes throughout. It's funny because most of the time when I'm taking notes on a movie we're covering, a lot of what I'm writing are more conversation points. Like, oh, this is something we should really touch on in this episode. Um, maybe like a theme or a concept or just something that's weird. Um, whereas in this case, a lot of my notes were just trying to keep track of what was going on with the broom documents and all that sort of thing. Um, but my main takeaway was I enjoyed sort of the, I guess, I guess you could say even more mainstream approach with the, um, Harry Palmer character giving him those types of quips. But when it came to an overall story that I actually cared about when it was over, I felt this one didn't quite deliver as strongly, even if like things like the locations and the supporting cast are quite strong. It's, I think, a totally entertaining movie that I'd recommend, but it's one that I can't, um, I guess, cheer for the way I could at Chris File. Mm. Oh, you wouldn't recommend it over the Chris File, will you? Definitely not, no. No. Well. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you wouldn't. For, for Philistines like me, maybe. But then you're um, right, though. It, this film does reward active viewing. This is definitely not a passive film. You have to pay attention to understand yeah. what's going on. I, I, I went twice on this film. And, and and the second viewing really helped solidify what I thought had happened. But I, I did miss things on the first viewing. Yeah, I mean, the whole broom documents, tracing those... Um, that I think was the biggest challenge for me was the introduction of them mm. and then tracking exactly what's going on with them scene to scene. I found a lot of the stuff to do with, you know, the character of like um, um, Johnny Vulcan. It kind of does feel like it comes out of nowhere, but it's explained well enough that I never felt confused by it. To me, it was really just all fell on those broom documents. <laughs> it, I could see why people might say, the film falls apart around about the time where the body is transferred. Mm, I'd agree with that. It, yeah, I, I have. I've, I've read that opinion, and I can definitely understand it because that's the part where you need to start paying attention. Or I, I'll rephrase that: that's the part where your attention uh, begins to pay off. Because mm. mm-hmm. if yeah. you're really invested in the film, you, you kind of understand why this is happening. Well, it's also, you know, a lot of the plot set up for this is Harry Palmer going over to help this Colonel Stock character defect. And the entire time I'm tracking this, I'm making like just notes to myself like this movie is so straightforward. This can't be what this movie's about, because if the whole movie is just Harry Palmer going over doing a daring, you know, escape for um, Colonel Stock, it's like, OK, fine, that can be entertaining enough. But when you look at the Ipcris file, you know, there's a twist in that that's kind of bizarre. There's some really unexpected, um, you know, payoff with that movie. And if that if this movie had just been, you know, defecting this guy, that's not exactly what you ex- what you would expect from a sequel to the Ipcris file. Mm. Yeah, the first time I watched it, and the coffin came open, and I thought, well, who the hell is this now? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, so I I don't think that. That had been properly enough set up. Yeah, um, I, I'm. I I don't like things to be spoon fed to me, but mm. I think one or two things just needed to be set up a little better. You know that also, like, because yeah, the character of Reinhard, who's this kind of sketchy guy they're dealing with, is the one who's in the coffin. But you know that if you if this movie were made probably now. Um, after that body's discovered, you would get a flashback showing how this all came to be. Yeah. And this movie doesn't give you that. 
no. And it doesn't really explain... Well, it, do, it you get Stock's motivation for having him killed, but you really have to work at that. I mean, it, it's all fairly logical. He wants to get rid of someone who is challenging the security of the wall that he runs. It makes perfect sense, but the way they get there is very convoluted. Hmm. Yeah. It definitely feels like something um, that, in terms of you know the book source material probably makes a lot of sense and i wonder if a lot of it was the filmmakers saying we don't need to over explain this let's just you know keep the picture going whereas uh if you have that source material in front of you a lot of this would make complete logical sense moment to moment well i can tell you the book reads very differently to the film Mm -hmm. that's i mean that is the way of things isn't it yeah i'm just curious how does the the book deal with these sort of convoluted plot mechanics well, the first thing is, of course, you've got 300 pages to explain it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the story is significantly different. Right. So, so it doesn't okay. hit the same beats as, as this film then? No. No. I mean, it's very much an adaptation right. of the source material. More of a born identity type thing. Uh, I don't know. I've not read those. Ah. Uh, well, they, they, they basically take the name of Jason Bourne, and uh, that's about it. <laughs> maybe some sort of incident in the book that they'll use as their inspiration for the story. But um, yeah, they're largely inventions. Would you say this one is more invention or just kind of maybe so like some of the bonds where they take some setup, they take some characters, but they kind of change the direction throughout. Yes. I think that sums it up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, that makes sense when you have uh, Harry Saltzman producing he has his template for how he makes his Bond movies that makes sense that he would carry that over to this world as well. Right. Well, I want to get into the individual performances, but one thing I I did want to talk about quickly before we move on to that is I know obviously, Duncan, you are a professional musician by trade and we we know you love the soundtrack. I think Cam said you were a big fan of the soundtrack to the first film as well. I don't really remember it so much myself, but straight away in this movie... It is outrageously weird. Yeah, well, I can throw some light on that because actually that comes from the novel, I think. Because, um, now, I'm going to forget which character it is, but one of the characters has um, very sophisticated musical tastes and he listens to avant-garde or contemporary 20th century classical music. So we're talking about Webern, Berg, Schoenberg, Stockhausen, that kind of stuff um, is his sort of daily listening. And so I think that the, the, the music at the very beginning, um, which is supposed obviously to show us how sophisticated everybody in the West is, mm. is taken perhaps from that idea in the book. I, I wrote down, what is this opening track? It feels like a mix between George Formby and the Imperial March. <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> that's a styles clash right there yeah i want to hear that now <laughs> <laughs> the ukulele version of uh, the imperial march sounds great yeah it could catch on and i know they made a conscious decision because john barry um scored the first film and they switched to conrad elfers to give the movie more of a german flavor um did that german flavor work for either of you no mm, okay how come Oh, oh God, I, I, I hated the soundtrack. I really, it was so unsubtle, I thought. 
when you compare it with the John Barry one, which is so subtle and nuanced. So when they went from the west to the east, um, then it was sort of umpa music, and it was so. <laughs> <laughs> it was really on the nose, you know, wasn't it? I just thought that was very basic stuff. It was, you know, similar to I was joking with Scott, we did an episode recently on Jumpin' Jack Flash, how every time they would cut to the British consulate, you'd get the dun 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 yeah. dun, dun dun. You know, it's like, okay, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what this felt a little bit like as well. Well, I mean, if uh Probably shouldn't get too into this, but and the the coffin moment. Oh, that was awful! With the screaming trumpets, um, we can see it's a dead body. I, I, it's just it's not it's not the way that I think a soundtrack should be approached. Personally, I don't remember the choice they made with the coffin opening. Is it just trombones or something? It's just blaring into a microphone. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Oh, lovely. So it's kind of that um almost that horror movie type score of the 60s you would hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um it's weird to me that they would make such a drastic musical change because when you look at the success that Harry Seltzman had with the Bo- or with the Bond franchise, Bond has a very specific musical identity. Mm-hmm. And you would have thought that he would have felt tempted to continue that with um Harry Palmer. Well, I, the only thing I could think of was that at just about this time, John Barry's career was really starting to take off. Mm-hmm. And so I wondered if he was too busy to do this film. Quite possible, yeah. Because he was being nominated for all sorts of things. And I had a quick look on IMDb, and he, he was I think he had about four or five films that came out the same year as this. So he would have been very, very busy indeed. Mm-hmm. And I just, I wonder if he looked at it and thought, well, I've kind of done all I can do with Ipcress. Yeah, it's sort of like passing it off to the next composer that hopefully they keep some of the same themes, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Instead, we get umpa music. Well, the, <laughs> the other thing is that I, I think there were moments where there would have been, you see, there'd be a sort of music advisor. So a music advisor will come up with a temp track for the film and uh, so that might be bits of classical music bits of jazz that they've found on recordings and agreed with the director that they like that bit here and they like that bit there and then you go to your composer and say this is the temp track and occasionally um, I think 2001 was an example of this it ends up that the director just prefers the temp track and the composer gets fired so, yeah, you know, that's how we famously, I think, ended up with the Blue Danube in 2001. Mm-hmm. Because they just yeah, there's a little... get anything better than that. I've definitely heard examples of this over the years, especially even just with pop songs or rock songs in movies where it was a temp track song that they just realized they couldn't live without. So, yeah, that is quite common for sure. Yeah. So I, I think with Funeral in Berlin, I'm convinced that there are bits where they've gone to the composer and said, this is where we could do the bit of John Barry because you can hear it's like a a sort of pale imitation of the Ipcrest music. Mm-hmm. So does that mean at some point the music advisor saw the scene of the coffin opening and then just grabbed a recorder and a trombone and just bled into it and said, that's what we need. And then they just kept it basically. <laughs> well, <laughs> print it. Sound- it's gold. <laughs> that could be it. Yeah. 
Maybe they grabbed like a track from like a Hammer horror movie or something. Who knows? What was Yoko Ono doing at this time? <laughs> See, I think with music, a, a score should be like another level. So it's not commenting on the action, which that really was commenting on the action. It's saying you should be horrified. It's integral to the story. It doesn't sit right. on top of the plot. It's actually integral, and it mm -hmm. helps the story progress. Well, if it's done right, it's it's evocative. It's it's supposed to enhance your enjoyment of, yeah. of whatever it is you're taking in. I mean, I I hate to reference the Phantom Menace, uh, Star Wars, the Phantom Menace, I should say, but when the Duel of the Fates plays in the fight between Darth Maul and Obi Wan and uh, and um, Qui Gon Jinn, Qui Gon Jinn, there we go. <laughs> Qui-Gon Jim reference on Spy Hards. Uh, it, it just, <laughs> it, uh, what is a horrible, mostly horrible film, it really brings it up a level. Yeah, that, I mean, that that soundtrack is extraordinary, I think. That is a terrible film. It's probably the last great Star Wars score. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Controversial there. I'll let, I'll let okay. these two fight off, uh, fight off air on, on Star Wars uh, scores. But uh, let, let's uh, let's move on to some of the actors in the film. Now we have Michael Caine coming back and reprising the role of Harry Palmer, a role he will reprise again in the future. Um, Duncan, what did you think about Michael in this film? Um, well, I think he's great. I, I, the only thing I thought was I could have done with a bit more of him, actually. Yeah, he does seem to disappear for sections at a time. I can totally see that, yeah. For like for me, this was an interesting one for me to watch because it felt like when I watched the Ip Chris file, I am seeing a young actor who's figuring out who he is. I mean, Michael Caine had done Zulu at that point, but he was not a big star. That movie made him a star. This movie, watching it, I felt like I was seeing movie star Michael Caine. Like it felt like that sort of rough around the edges actor we saw in the Ip Chris file was kind of gone. You know, he was almost a little too confident with the quips. It really felt like he was more of a leading man, you know, really dominating the frame versus the first film. It was a bit more of like a wink at the camera sort of delivery sometimes with those quips. Yeah, it really did. And it felt like they were writing more to what are Michael Caine's strengths? Whereas I don't know if that was the case when they did the original. It was probably, I can't remember the details, but it was probably written without him in mind and he got the job instead. Because he, he's supposed to be this, uh, Duncan said earlier, working class hero, anti-hero gets thrown around, the thinking man's bond. But in this film, it feels like he's more detached from what's going on as if he's above it all. Uh, more akin to the the Napoleon solos of the universe, mm. but it, but he is a man of integrity, though, isn't he? I mean, he and, definitely is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he goes he goes to get eight hundred pounds for a car halfway through the film, and then at the end of the film, when he's about to be rewarded, um, he he knocks back the eight hundred pounds, right? Because he wants nothing to do with them. And also, if you think about the way that he is with with the female lead, you know, I mean, it couldn't be any less James Bond. So he's he clearly thinks there's no way on earth that a woman like this could possibly be interested in me. So she must be a spy. 
I, I admittedly laughed when he, he wrote that in his report, that he was so aware of his existence that uh, he couldn't pull someone like her. Yeah. And I, I do love um, Ross's, uh, Guy Dolman is the actor, but Ross's take on that of like your vaguely like pornographic report. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's quite a lot of um, double entendre in the film, isn't there? Um, I mean, he's a lingerie salesman. <laughs> Yes, he is, um, yes. She's she's a lingerie model when he meets her. Supposedly. Supposedly, yeah. yeah. And then, I don't know if you clocked it, perhaps this says more about me than anything, but whenever he spends a night in her apartment, there are some rather phallically shaped objects, that, bollards that he walks past as he goes on his business the next day. <laughs> Did you I, I, was, I was not looking for that, Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> but I will be now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going back for a third viewing. I've got to see them <laughs> bollards. <laughs> but to be fair, though, I, I did make a note of those scenes. It's a really classy move. And it does feel kind of in the vein of Harry Palmer. To They're portraying the message that he has stayed the night and something has happened between them. But they don't give you anything all it is is him leaving the next day because you can see that the sun's out and the bollards and and of course the bollards those sexy (laughs) sexy bollards (laughs) i thought it was really interesting too and that a lot of this movie dealing with the moral code of harry palmer is him kind of saying he doesn't have one he doesn't care he doesn't you know he just wants to retire he wants to defect whatever but Everyone else seems to believe a lot more, but ultimately Harry Palmer cares a lot. And it feels like this movie is really underscoring that a lot of the Harry Palmer act is to give off this sort of um, illusion of a guy who's not happy to be there and isn't that invested. And that's kind of the strength of why he works as an agent. Yeah. Yeah. He gets killed an idiot twice in this film. And I think of all the people in this film, he is the furthest removed from an idiot. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, in when he's in Stock's office, and he they talk about Stock's past, and Palmer says to him, "You know what you are, don't you? You're an expendable hero." And that's clearly what Palmer is, really. Right, and Palmer knows it though. I think that's maybe the difference: is Stock doesn't. Yeah, but Palmer knows that he could be replaced in a heartbeat. Yeah, and then of course he doesn't shoot. You know, the guy that he's been told to shoot, he won't do it. And not to mention uh, Guy Dolman's character, Ross, later on says to Palmer, you know, when Palmer was saying, oh, I feel like I might get you know, a bullet in the head. And he just turns around and says, well, that's what you're paid for. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting to contrast the relationship between James Bond and M versus the Ross um, Harry Palmer. And that, you know, it's not that dissimilar in the sense of sort of this kind of gruff and a little bit grumpy boss, but the way that the Harry Palmer scenes are dealt with, there's a little more of a sadness and a melancholy to, you know, your takeaway to those of Harry Palmer's place within this world. And as you, you know, we've said how expendable he is. Whereas like James Bond, it's played more for a joke here. There's actual real subtext of kind of the tragic life in some ways of Harry Palmer. Ultimately, he doesn't choose this life. Unlike James Bond. Mm-hmm. He, he he's a reluctant spy. Well, isn't he on, still on parole? Yeah. Yep. 
So you can see why he's sort of done with it because he doesn't yeah. want to be there because it's not his choice. Mm. Yeah. And I do wonder how much of the rebelliousness of Harry Palmer they were trying to play up in this film just to appeal to the youth demographic, especially, you know, this was a big time, the mid to, you know, we're getting to the later 60s where the counterculture is starting to come up. And I, I wonder if they were hoping that sort of the Harry Palmer experience would really connect with young people. As in somewhat stuck in this world and having to deal with it. And not enjoying it and, and kind of, you know, he's constantly making quips about it and rolling his eyes about it. Like he feels, you know, I, I remember, you know, George Lazenby left the Bond franchise because he said, look, Bond is establishment. This is on its way out. Whereas I wonder if they were trying to position Harry Palmer as that alternative, someone who was questioning the system, who was a rebel within the system. Can I just ask, have you seen The Spy Who Came In From The Cold? I have, yes. Because I think there's a lot of lemus about him, about Palmer. Mm. It's that same disaffected um, character. It certainly feels like that's more of the real-life taste of what a spy is like. I don't imagine many actual spies enjoy their work. I would guess not. It seems like a very lonely life. And I think, you know, with Harry Palmer, a lot of that is dealt with through his, you know, defense mechanism, which is humor. Absolutely. And you just think, I I like the comparison you made earlier about uh, Michael Caine coming to this film in a different frame of mind, because I feel like his delivery is a bit different now. Probably not as nice. I would like to have seen him deliver more jokes in the first film, but that's just my personal taste. <laughs> um, just to make it a little bit lighter. But um, yeah, overall, I still think Michael Caine's got it. I think it, he he's still great in the role. Now, Scott, you were, um, I think, quite enchanted by Harry Palmer's proposed um, alter- alternate, you know, spy name, weren't you? Oh, I, I am a, a massive, massive fan of Rock Hunter. <laughs> who on earth isn't or does not want to be rock hunter now scott um duncan i don't know if you're aware of this that is a pop culture reference i wasn't aware of that is it it is um there is a 1957 comedy called will success spoil rock hunter starring tony randall and jane mansfield um Weirdly enough, I have seen this movie. Um, it was because on one of my other podcasts, uh, Arnie Geddon, which is an Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast, <laughs> we covered the Jane Mansfield story, which was a TV movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm-hmm. And so I did a little bit of research on Jane Mansfield films, and this was her biggest hit. So Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, I guess, was still in the air uh, just a little under a decade after its release. And so they were referencing that in this scene in Funeral in Berlin. Boom. That is is very good research. That's some knowledge right there. (laughs) That is accidental research. The best kind. (laughs) Can you imagine how I felt when, you know, because they clearly picked it because it was a terrible name. And my protagonist in my books is called Scott Hunter. And I just thought, oh, no, this is terrible. (laughs) I think it's the rock part that makes it awkward, yeah. though. Scott, you're it safe. Is. Yeah. <laughs> I did love that moment, though, because I did. Yeah, that was a total. My ears pricked up, and I said, "What did he just say?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
It just felt like such an odd name to come up with, but at least I know there's a background to the name now. Yeah, there you have it. <laughs> but Edmund Dorf, I mean, come on. I, you see, that's, to me, wonderful. Because the fact is, we've seen Bond get alternate names like James Stock or James Sinjin Smythe or something like that. But um, giving him this one is so awkward. Edmund Dorf, there's nothing cool about it. And I kind of like that they're presenting him as... I mean, it's almost like they're trolling him, you know, at his headquarters. They're like, let's just give this guy the dumbest name possible and send him out there. Like, they're trying to strip him of his dignity with this alter ego name. Uh, Yeah, I still think I would rather have Rock Hunter myself. I'd rather stand out than be a total square like Edmund Dorf, (laughs) even though he does carry around a a suitcase full of ladies' underwear. Fair enough. We were speaking about him before, but let's have a quick chat about Guy Dolman's return as Ross, the only other returning character that's played by the same actor, because we do have a different returning character as well. But mm-hmm. I, Cam, you said before when we covered the Ipcris file that you hoped he returns, and he has returned in true Ross form. <laughs> I am curious, though, Duncan, what was your take on the character of Ross, you know, going from the Ipcris file into this one? Oh, I think he's wonderful. He's so, um, oh, what's the word? I mean, he, 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 he's no time for anybody. I can imagine that he went to a, a horrible school, <laughs> probably a all boys school was a board. It'd be a boarding school and had a really miserable time. And he's intent on taking that out on everybody that works for him. I think he's he's a fantastic character, and it's brilliantly acted, isn't it? Oh yeah, and do you think there's a little bit of jealousy going on between him and Harry Palmer? Because we see Harry Palmer is this kind of man about town. You know, the movie opens; he's playing Mozart and cooking with some you know love interest who's over, and then we go to Ross's house, and he's like pulling weeds in his garden. Like, I get a sense a lot of the um, anger towards Harry Palmer from Ross comes for I mean many reasons, obviously you know, Harry being on parole and what have you, but also just this Harry Palmer is kind of living the life in some ways. And Ross, I don't think is the happiest of people. You're, you're taking the Bentley to go to the butcher shop. No, I think you're actually right. <laughs> just to go back to that opening scene with the girl in his flat. And I made a note because it is a wonderful line and they've had this pianist escape. I thought the escape was great in the bucket mm-hmm. yeah that was great yeah. um then and he's a pianist and they're listening to him then play the piano on the on the radio and he says who's that playing the piano with his elbows mm-hmm. i thought that was wonderful no no i i quite like the follow-up line where he just tells the the girl that she's useless in the kitchen then to get back to bed <laughs> i was like yeah wow <laughs> that's a very bond line to come out with that's like a sean connery bond line i don't think roger moore would have dropped that one no, he'd be too busy making a quiche. <laughs> That's right. Um, but yeah, it was great to see Ross back. He was, as I said, in true Ross form. He was his stuffy old self. Um, he seems completely disinterested with anyone's feelings. It, it's just about getting the job done at the end of the day. Yeah. I did miss Dobby, though. The character of Major Dobby from the first film he injected an energy into mm. that film that I kind of missed with the supporting cast of this movie. And that I, while we'll, you know, we'll talk about them and I liked a lot of them, none of them had the energy of Major Dobby. 
He was he mm-hmm. was a standout bit of the Epicus yep. file that I I I enjoyed looking back, somewhat begrudgedly perhaps. Mm-hmm. Well, let's tackle the litany of bad guys in this film as sort of a group. They've all uh, at, at times they're all good guys and then become bad guys. I think mostly they yeah. There's not one single person that is that doesn't flip in this film, mm-hmm. which I think lends to the uh, confusing status of this film. I feel like it works well here though, and that the movie doesn't feel like it's cheating because I do think you can have double crosses that you just pile up so high that the movie becomes kind of just frustrating and unwatchable. I think of the third pirates of the Caribbean movie at world's end, where it's just like two and a half hours of double crosses. So you don't care. Whereas this movie, I feel like it plays fair and if you track them, it does make sense logically at the end. You think about a Pirates of the Caribbean film? I tried, Scott. God, did I try. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask what you thought about Stock and the and the actor who played him? Oh, Oscar Homolka um, as Stock. Yeah, this this um, colonel that's going to possibly defect. I liked him in that I felt like you know Homolka had a larger than life presence about him. Um, he's, I, I kind of sensed he was a red herring all along. And so I had trouble investing a lot in what I was seeing of the character because I didn't really buy that that was the reality. Well, I, I wondered if he'd been sort of put in as a, a comedy turn to, to just raise the spirits a bit of the audience. So I found him utterly unbelievable. He is very cartoonish. Yeah. Yeah. He's probably the closest you have like, to a yeah. mustache twirling villain in this film, because he is a a bad guy, yeah. you know, communist, and he does feel like a distraction because he is such a mustache twirler uh, that you're kind of looking at him the whole time, which in a way works to what the movie wants to do, which is kind of pull the rug out from under you, because if you're focused on stock, this very larger than life character throughout, um, you kind of let you know elements like johnny vulcan and stuff like that slip by you so i think he fulfills his purpose but he was not the like i'm not going to remember him the way i remember major dalby no 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 but uh, the only person Mm. i think it probably comes closest to another villain that is memorable would be johnny vulcan is he memorable Mm. Mm. (laughs) not particularly (laughs) I, i suppose he's 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 got a memorable twist. You, uh, when you first meet him, you wouldn't think, "Oh, that guy's a Nazi," right? But no, I, 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 I couldn't draw the guy. I couldn't pick him in a lineup, and I've watched the film twice. I can barely remember what he looks like now. I mean, he's played by Paul Hubschmidt, um, who's an actor I'm not super familiar with. I, I he feels like a character that's a plot mechanic, not really a character, um, because the way he's introduced is sort of this guy that Harry knows but it's all vaguely sketched out. And then you get this heel turn. And even then I didn't really have any sort of attachment to the character. I mean, to me, his best scene is probably the one where Harry is going to take him into the woods and possibly execute him. You know, a scene we've seen so many times. That's something that, you know, the Coen brothers have played with in Miller's crossing, for mm-hmm. example, the whole we're in the woods, there's going to be an execution kind of like even uh, Inglorious bastards did this as well. Um, I thought it was well set up and staged, but my investment in, any of this was entirely on the Harry Palmer character. Uh, the Johnny Vulcan character was just more of a twist character. Well, um, but his story is integral to the whole film, isn't it? Because it revolves around the question, the sort of moral conundrum of 
what do you do if uh, you've got the choice between being a guard in a concentration camp and being sent to the Eastern Front mm-hmm. and probably die? So, I, I mean, he's another character that I didn't feel we knew enough about him. So when we got to that moment of realisation, it didn't quite sit right. It hadn't been foreshadowed quite enough, I don't think, up to that point yeah. for his character to completely make sense. Because when you're talking about him being a guard at a concentration camp, that's heavy. Like, that is heavy material that I felt like the movie didn't really want to engage that much with. It was kind of like, toss that off. Okay, we know he's a bad guy because of this. But it's not like they really interrogate that for the rest of the movie with that character. Well, the, the film is juggling yeah. a lot of themes. You've got, you know, Nazism, the war crimes. You've got Zionism and you know, the Israeli interests at the same time. Obviously, what's happening, the communists in Berlin. There's a lot of geopolitical stakes going on around about the same time. So I could I can understand why in, in a one hour and 40 minute film, they didn't want to dig too deep into it. But you're right, Duncan, that I don't think it earns that twist. But I mean, moving on to... The only other, I would say, straight-up bad guy, although he has a very strange start in the film, which I want to talk about, is uh, Hugh Burden as Hallam. Oh, yeah. Now, what was that intro with the cat thing? Was that, was that, was that a joke I was supposed to get with the whole, like, are you, have you found my cat? Was that code? I think that's in the book. It was very strange, but he's a very strange character, isn't he? That's putting it lightly, I think. I mean... Palmer says to him, when did you get back? Because he's got this kind of kimono thing on. You know, and he says, where from? And he says, well, when did you get back from China? It's, he, he's a real oddball guy. But I think he's another one of those ones where I didn't understand his motivation at all. You've got this guy, as you say, he's walking around his house on a Saturday in a kimono, uh, completely bizarre. He doesn't have any change, so asks Harry Palmer for a shilling for the meter. Like this is an oddball character, and you don't. You, you... That's his motivation right there. Money. Yeah. Well, absolutely, because he's in it for the tune of a hundred, uh, a million pounds, is it, or dollars? Um, I think it was pounds. I think I may be wrong about that, but I mean, it, it that does make a lot of sense because when you have all of these other characters who have moral stakes in this game. He is the opportunist, uh, much more so, mm. just there for the cash, which um, maybe makes him less interesting as a uh, you know as a villain, but it explains logically why he's there and why he's involved. I mean, that will certainly buy him a lot of kimonos. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cat food yeah, to get that cat back. <laughs> There's quite a bit of scenery chewing with him, isn't there? I, I mean, I like it. I didn't think it was too much. But he's really hams it up, that part. Oh, yeah. He's definitely having fun. Yeah, he's definitely enjoying himself. I was wondering if they were playing with some sort of queer coding or or something like that. But that's not really something that they... that I don't know if the book makes any mention of the Hallam character at all. Uh, Oh, not in that way. But I would... That's what I would have taken from the film. Mm. I mean, representation in films in the 60s and 50s was... Is not there particularly, um, except for you know slight comments here and there. And I, I did bump on Harry doing a somewhat effeminate impression of him at the airport later on. Right. Yeah. 
Mm. I mean, I, I I'm not gonna lie. I got a little nervous when they went to that uh, Shea New um, club mm. where it was sort of like the drag acts. I was like, uh oh, like in a 1966 film, what are we gonna get here that's iffy? And it was actually, I thought, uh, better handled than I expected. Yeah, uh, it actually was. I I too was concerned, and I obviously had some issues with representation in the first Ipcus file film uh, with mm. a couple of things, but um, they they handled that quite well. Now I did just want to make a mention of that uh, Shay Nu scene. Have either of you watched Monty Python's Flying Circus? I've seen the movies, not the show. Duncan. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now there's a there's a skit in Monty Python's Flying Circus about the a, a joke that the army makes to uh, basically it's a killer joke, but it's in German, so they unleash it on the front to 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 kill off the German army because it's the funniest thing ever. And I, all I could hear was people make and basically they just read the joke in German all the time, so you don't know what the funniest joke in the world is, and that's basically the joke of the skit. But just them reading out stuff in German and then everyone laughing hysterically just reminded me of that completely. <laughs> Weird thing to connect, but I guess it was around about the same time period. Yeah. But I felt like that whole scene really was quite memorable. Like it was the movie, you know, as we've said, is sort of a gray overcast kind of grungy look to it. But then you get a scene like that where it really feels like alive because of the location. Well, I thought it was funny when the the sort of waitress says to him, um, follow the man with the green carnation. Right, yeah. And the the guy gets up and he walks about six feet out of the club and that's it. <laughs> uh, he's a newbie in the game, who knows? <laughs> uh, he, he's earning his paycheck just like everyone else. <laughs> that's right. But what did you guys think of uh, Eva Renzi, who came in as Samantha Steele? She was a last-minute, as I said, casting choice and fairly new actress. Um, uh, Duncan, what did you think of her? Um, well, I think she fulfilled her role very well. I mean, she's the sort of Bond girl, I guess. Is that fair yeah. to say? Yeah, she feels much like one of the really capable ones in that like you do get some agent characters. Like she doesn't feel like uh, you know, kind of one of the drag along ones that they would put in some of the weaker Bond films. Yeah. I mean, the only comment I've made about her was there's a there is an odd scene towards the end um where he goes to her apartment and it appears as though he may have taken the documents from the safe, but he hasn't actually. And then she she sort of declares her love for him one minute and then tells him to get out the next. And I just thought it was a bit all over the place. It was a bit kind of up and down. Um, but I thought she was very good, actually. I, I, I enjoyed watching her. And I thought there was a lovely moment at the very end when she just looks at him, they look at each other and you wonder what would happen after the film to those two characters yeah i i really enjoyed her performance I, I you know initially you're kind of like when she's introduced as like a lingerie model in my head i'm like oh boy here we go <laughs> 1960s love interest but you know when we find out she is with israeli intelligence and there's so much more going on here i felt like the actress worked really well in that role like you could buy the duality and that she's obviously a very beautiful human being who puts most of humanity to shame, but at the same time, you completely buy her as an Israeli intelligence operative 
who is using, you know, her God-given assets, I guess, to pull the wool over these guys' eyes and succeed in doing so, but also has a moral code she very strongly believes in as well, in a way that maybe Harry Palmer doesn't, or at least won't admit to. Well, she has got something that's much more tangible Mm -hmm. to believe in than Palmer has. Very true. Palmer's really only got Ross to believe in, and that isn't much, is it? <laughs> Definitely not. I don't know that I could ever believe in Ge- in uh, General Ross or whatever. <laughs> no, no. But she's, so she's really got, um, you know, the true conviction in what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my two cents on Eva Renzi as Samantha Steele is she came in, and a film I was sort of enjoying at that point, and just increased my enjoyment of the film she was very funny to me and also i apart from when she obviously it was quite obvious she was a spy they they telegraphed that but um i just enjoyed seeing her on the screen every time she was there it just lit up the screen for me yeah she definitely uh has charisma mm. you know there's some qualities you just can't teach and uh you know on screen you know wattage that's one of them and uh she has it in a film where harry palmer is a step ahead of most people She's probably one of the only ones who actually managed to keep up. Yeah. Which is, that's nice to say for a female character in a 60s film. Yeah. And uh, she was someone who, when the movie was over, I was kind of surprised I hadn't seen Eva Renzi in more movies of this era. Um, I, I have no idea why I haven't. She seems like someone who, you know, should have gotten work after this. I wonder if this movie's underperforming really didn't do her any favors. I I do have a quick question for you, Cam, just in your research. You didn't mention it earlier, but maybe you've come across it. Was she dubbed at all? Because there was a lot of dubbing in this film. I didn't find that. Um, It's quite possible, but I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I I can't commit to an answer on that one. I didn't detect it, if that's the case. Yeah. There was just a lot of times where I like her mouth was clearly not moving. Or she was saying something completely different, which can just be like ADR after the film. But a lot of actresses around this time were dubbed by other people. So it's it's always something I look for. Every Bond girl was dubbed at this point. Um, you know what? It's not impossible because I don't know how good her English necessarily was. Um, so it's, it's possible. I've got a question, actually. Yeah. Um, is this one of the first or one of the earliest examples of product placement oh right yeah um i don't know what you're talking about I'm, because I, i'm sat here in my lovely comfortable <laughs> mercedes benz of course but what are you talking about i i thought it was i was quite astonished to see quite that level of plugging of mercedes and olivetti as well well, I mean, this movie is 66, and Scott and I recently covered Dr. No, which is 62. And Scott, what vodka was he drinking throughout that movie? Like, it was very prominent. Was it Smirnoff, or what was I, it? I wouldn't be surprised if it was Smirnoff, but I honestly couldn't give you a firm answer. Yeah, like, whatever it was, there's like three different cases of that bottle being prominently displayed. So, no, I mean, it had been done before this, and... uh that was a huge element of the Bond franchise because that's how they, you know, offset the cost of their productions a lot of the time was with these um, product placements. And Harry Seltzman, producer from the Bond franchise, is carrying over here, so it wouldn't surprise me if he was using some of those tricks here as well. Hmm. Okay, well let's um, let's just do final thoughts on the film, and then we'll get to where we think it sits. 
Um, I want to make a quick mention about the fact that it's an hour and 22 minutes until you see a fight. Very true. <laughs> and I actually thought of you the entire time I was watching that fight, Scott. Did you approve of this fight versus the uh, the one outside Royal Al- uh, Albert Hall in the Ipcris file? Well, I could see it for a start. <laughs> Call me a cynic or, you know, someone who's very critical of films. But I like to actually see what's happening. You know, Duncan, you have to come down as the one to uh, settle this argument. Where do you stand on the Royal Albert Hall fight in the Ipcris file? <laughs> oh, um, well, I, I'm, I, I just love that film. So, it, you know, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> Advantage <I'm> cam. <laughs> Apparently, Duncan is all about Dutch <laughs> angles through telephone boxes. That's right. Yeah, it's true. Um, I've I've got a note on that fight that just says that um, the actor that's fighting <laughs> uh, Palmer sticks his chin out and asks Palmer to hit it. <laughs> it's it's pretty basic stuff, isn't it? It is fairly. I mean, nineteen sixties fight blocking is a pretty <laughs> a pretty clumsy often case, and um, you know. It is what it is. I did love the moment, though, later in this film, right when I, that bad guy's going to get shot, when uh, Johnny Vulcan gets killed, when Harry Palmer does that, like, ninja-like back like roll <laughs> out of the scene, I was like, that is the most incredible <laughs> thing I've ever seen. He's just like, yep, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> like, where is that? I want Harry Palmer, that to be his new thing, is back rolling out of situations. It's like that Del Boy only falls on horses when he leans on the bar and just like falls through the side of it, just like disappears off screen. That classic shot. But he just goes, yeah, I'm just going to get out of here. Whoop. That's all, folks. Um, I had another question. This is a really minutia-obsessed question, but that elevator he gets in at the oh um, uh, East East Berlin Police Headquarters, I guess. Um, what was that? Aren't you all your elevators like that? <laughs> People would be killed daily if those were the real life <laughs> elevators. Like, what was that? We need more of those sorts of elevators. Yeah, survival don't we? of the fittest. Yeah, just, just weed out the weak. <laughs> Who can jump into a wooden box the quickest? Literally, that's your coffin. Hold on. Hold on, Scott. We may have a connection there between that elevator oh. and the funeral in Berlin. Bit of symbolism. Okay. It it reminded me I when I went to Paris a couple of years ago and you go on the metro around there and the the train doors are that you can open them yourselves and they're not like automatic when it stops at the station basically you have to open the door to get out of the train and so when uh, myself and Hannah were first there we were sort of riding the metro around Paris and people were just as the train is still pulling into the station they're opening the door and walking off and we were blown away, like these brave people just stepping off a moving train. <laughs> I, I would not get on that elevator, I have to say. That is a scary piece of machinery. No wonder they all have like doors and buttons now. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, I would imagine once the the wall fell down, those elevators disappeared. I did notice, though, you know, we talked about the style of Guy Hamilton, and we haven't talked a lot about that through this episode, but I feel like Guy Hamilton is a director who's, he's an, he's one I struggle with a little bit, and that when I look at his movies, 
I like a lot of them, but I don't know that I would say he's a director with a lot of flair. You know, Goldfinger is the one that will always kind of point to him and be like, look, he did Goldfinger. He's obviously great. But when I look at like the visuals of Live and Let Die or The Man with the Golden Gun, he's someone that I've always felt is a little bit flat. And I kind of felt that was the case here visually, but I did appreciate there was a couple scenes where he worked in some Dutch angles um, or also low angle shots of Harry Palmer. There's only a couple of them, but they're enough to at least give a little bit of tribute to the you know visual continuity of the Ipcris file. Did any of you pick up on on those moments? To be honest, it's not something I I technically noticed. I felt like the cinematography in the Ipcris file was so bizarre that it stood out to me, and, and I'm not someone who pays attention to it particularly. But this film just felt mm-hmm. more. I don't want. I don't like the use of this word, but just safe. Yeah, which is probably why they went with mm. a, a trusted hand as the director in this film. But um, yeah, I didn't notice that as an homage particularly. I, I felt the film just flowed naturally as a normal, I don't want to say blockbuster because we didn't have blockbusters in those days, but as a normal film would. Right. What about, did you pick up on that, Duncan, at all with the direction? I'm ashamed to say I didn't. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, the way Guy Hamilton shoots his movies, he is more of, I find, to be a point-and-shoot director. Um, you know, he doesn't have, obviously, he's not going for the the radical ideas that Sidney J. Fury was, but it did feel like he worked in a couple low-angle shots just to kind of capture that world a little bit that we saw in the first film. So, I don't know. stood out to me. You're the guy I would trust to get that nod. So if you felt it was mm-hmm. there, it probably was there. And compared to say the music of this film is stark contrast to the Ipcris file, at least the cinematography has some nods to the original. Yeah. Right. Well, here we are. We've come to the time where we answer the question, does Funeral in Berlin make the knock list? Now, for those keeping track, Ipcris file did make the knock list. So will the sequel continue the tradition Duncan, as you're our guest, I'll throw it to you first. Does it make the knock list? Um, well, first of all, thank you very much for, for having me on and thank you for letting me uh, um, say that I think the, the film should be on the knock list. I'm afraid, from for me, I don't think it ought to be. And I think the reason is very simple. And you summed it up really nicely, Scott. You said it was safe. And I think it is safe. Um, it's it's a good film, but I don't think it's a great film. And in the same year when you've got The Spy Who Came In From The Cold coming out and The Ipcrest File, I just don't think it's up there. So I'm afraid for me it's a no. Okay, Cam. Yeah, it's also a no for me. This kind of falls in that camp of something like The Born Identity where I enjoyed the movie, but it just, you know... It, we can't necessarily be giving out awards to movies that are good. You know, I try to strive to give it to the ones that are great or at least are contributing something that feels maybe groundbreaking or adds something to the conversation. This movie is just a really, I think, solid, engaging spy story. Um, you know, Michael Caine is really good in it. It continues the world of The Ipcris File, but to me, The Ipcris File feels like such a special movie that feels like it's opening the doors to some really interesting spy stories. You know, when you look at the Bonds, you have Dr. No, you follow that with From Russia With Love. And there is a building of the elements that made Dr. No so successful. Whereas with this one, 
I feel like this one kind of shirks away from what made the Ipcris file so special and is trying to now just kind of be more of a, just kind of a safe mainstream entertainment. Safe's the word that keeps coming up, but it felt that way. And so for me, it's a movie, again, I would recommend it to fans of the Ipcris file. I think it's worth at watching. I think the performances are strong and it's entertaining enough. And as we've said, it's uh you know, it's a story to keep track of for sure. Like it will challenge spy film fans but it's not a great film in my mind so no for me so that's two no's so basically whatever i say now is completely pointless yes <laughs> but nonetheless we want to hear what you okay. have to say well I'm, I'm glad you do cam so as i alluded to at the beginning of this i actually enjoyed this film more than the ipcris file but there's a caveat there I let the ipcris file into the knock list i say let obviously i agree for it to go in there uh, but and, and I say I enjoyed this film more I think that's just me appreciating a film I found funnier but I, I tend to compare this now to uh, it's probably not a comparison anyone's ever made but to the Men in Black franchise Okay, yeah. Um, Men in Black 2 has things that happen in it and it has jokes and it has the same characters as Men in Black 1 but it's not anywhere near Men in Black 1. And we remarked on that ourselves when we covered it recently. But this one, again, has the same characters as Ipcris File and is probably more approachable for myself, but ultimately it is not a great film and it should not be heralded as one of the best spy films of all time. Even I can acknowledge that. Although I I do feel this film was severely lacking any scenes in a supermarket. I was really bummed about that. Actually. Uh, I think when the world returns to normal, Cam, we're going to have to go meet up in a supermarket somewhere and just uh, just exchange kids' food and, and mushrooms. And argue about American versus British shopping customs. Of course. And we'll just bang our trolleys together until we're done. That's right. <laughs> but to answer the question, no. I do not feel this film should make it on the knock list. It had some good bits to it. It rewards active viewing. And I would say, if you enjoyed the Ipcris file... I think following it up and getting more time with Michael Caine as Harry Palmer is a good thing. I just don't feel like it reached the heights of Ipcris File, and it certainly wasn't striving to reach those heights. My only hope now is that Billion Dollar Brain improves on this. Well, we'll find out. It's directed by Ken Russell, who's a madman, so uh, we'll see if that one gets really weird. We'll quote you on that one later. <laughs> So that is a three-way no. Funeral in Berlin is not making the knock list. We're going to shove it in a casket and throw it over the Berlin Wall past Checkpoint Charlie. (laughs) Um, But with that, the (laughs) dossier on this film is complete and marked as classified. Now, before we tackle what we're doing next week, Duncan, where can people hear more about you? Um, Well... I suppose this is my time to do a little plug for the books. Um, they're on Amazon, and um, you can read them on your Kindle, or you can buy a paperback. It's the Scott Hunter Spy series. And um, thank you ever so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun. No, it's great having you on. We'd love to have you back at some point, too. Talk about another franchise, maybe the spy who came in from the cold, even. Not a franchise, but stand What's your thoughts on cats and dogs? <laughs> oh, no. Don't do that to him, Scott. <laughs> Well, <laughs> um, slightly more um, of a lighter-hearted take on the spy genre than uh, the spy who came in from the cold. Oh well, I was going to ask you actually. 
I was thinking about music that I've recorded for films. You don't have to put this out if you don't want to. Um, and I did do I did the music for Cambridge Spies, which is really good TV thing sure. about Guy Burgess. That's really worth checking out. It's got Tom Hollander in it. Oh, okay. Um, but of films, I can only imagine that you're sort of building up to uh, Cody Banks' Secret Detective 2, <laughs> which was... No, that's... Duncan, that's how we end the show. That's the big finale. That's the fireworks when we close down the, the podcast. The coup de gras <laughs> of Spy Hards. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All I'm going to say is it's got some wonderful clarinet playing oh, in it. Oh, okay. There we go. Well, that, that actually uh, increases my estimation of Cody Banks. <laughs> I, I've never seen it. I, I don't look forward to watching it. Apart from the books, Duncan, can we find you anywhere else? Are you on Twitter? I, obviously, I know you're on Twitter. So, uh, Oh, yes. Where, what's your handle on Twitter so people can find you and talk to you on there about your books? So if people want to find me on Twitter, it's D-A-F for Freddie Swindells. Awesome. Support for Spy Hearts is brought to you by Manscaped. When it comes to below-the-waist grooming, nobody does it better. Manscaped's tech masterminds provide the most efficient tools an aspiring spy could hope for when it comes to prepping the family jewels. So Scott, what do you do to look after your double O's? Well, Cam, as you know, we work on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and that means sometimes we need to improvise. I've had to rely on all kinds of unreliable methods, including beard trimmers and even razor blades. And let's just say a couple of times my 007 almost became a 006. Put down the gold-cutting laser, Scott. <laughs> because as Q once said, never let them see you bleed and always have a Manscaped strategy. Well, Manscaped delivers on both fronts, thanks to their new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. This state-of-the-art electric hair trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade, a 90-minute battery, and the company's pioneered advanced skin-safe technology. Agents can trust their safety will be guaranteed when it comes to field work. Plus, this technology is waterproof and features an illuminating LED light for close-up precision. Even if you're swimming with sharks, you'll be able to keep the British end up. And this trimmer's high-speed 70,000 RPM motor will never compromise your stealth mode thanks to Manscaped's Quiet Stroke technology. These guys understand the demands of the lifestyle and are even throwing in a USB-powered charging stand as well. Spies do tend to live out of a suitcase, after all. Don't I know it. Experience it firsthand yourself. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SPYHARDS. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S at manscaped.com. We officially grant you all a license to trim. Your thunderballs will thank you. So, Cam, what are we tackling next week? We are tackling the 1931 Greta Garbo film, Mata Hari, based on the famous um, spy character from real life. So I'm looking forward to digging into what will be our oldest spy film next week. So, listeners, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Mata Hari from 1931. And don't forget to follow us discreetly, of course, at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, good luck among the shadows. <laughs>